when we see the context, we'll really get a sense of what's going on in, in John 3.16 and following. Jesus has been proclaimed by John the Baptist as being God's Messiah. And since then, he's been progressively revealing himself, uh, his person, and his mission to his disciples. Um, and he's already performed two signs. What are they? Can you remember? Two signs he's performed? Water to wine and a cleansing of the temple. That's right. And both of his signs display his glory as God and the glory of the work that he's come to accomplish. And through his death and resurrection, he would provide a better form of purification to Judaism, water to wine, and he would be this new, better temple, the cleansing of the temple. That's what the signs point to and, and teach. And the disciples don't get everything at first. They don't get everything until after the death and resurrection, but they're progressively growing in faith as they behold the glory of Christ put on display in the signs. So that's what's been going on. But then in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, we encounter another group of people. They're not rejecting Jesus outright, but neither do they have the same kind of faith as the disciples. They are the many. That's what John says. We read that many believe in Jesus' name in response to the signs that he's performing. And it looks really good on the surface. But as we read a little bit more, we come to find out there's something significantly wrong with their faith. And in the Gospel of John, there's this theme of true versus false faith all through the Gospel. And this is the beginning of sort of John's portrait of false, incomplete, deficient faith. It begins here. Many respond to with faith to Jesus, but it falls short of true faith. And we know this because while they are believing in him, John says that Jesus is not believing them. He's not entrusting himself to them. He's not giving himself to them in response to their faith. And you say, well, why? It's because Jesus possesses God-like knowledge of the depths of every single person's heart. And what he sees in the heart of these people is not good. He sees what's behind their faith. They're coming to Jesus, not because they see his glory that the signs point to, his person and what he's come to accomplish, but because they're just simply enamored with his miraculous powers, with his signs. They don't look beyond the signs to his glory. They're impressed with his signs. They're willing to affirm the supernatural in Jesus, but that's all. They don't go beyond that. And we get a case-in-point example of these people in who? In the man, Nicodemus. He's meant to give us a case-in-point example of this crowd, these many. Nicodemus is given to illustrate just what is deficient in the faith of these people. So what is it? What's deficient? What's wrong? As we study, we find out that Nicodemus is ignorant of his guilty condition and his enslavement. To sin. He's a Pharisee. He's a Jew. He's done a pretty good job cleaning up his life. I'm going to the kingdom. Of course I am. He's even willing to acknowledge Jesus as one come from God. But as soon as Jesus begins to put his finger 
on Nicodemus' need for new spiritual life and his true spiritual condition, he quickly rejects Jesus' words. And he quickly rejects Jesus' person, even though he's just declared that he's come from God. He got the signs right. He has come from God. But then when he hears, though, the words of Christ, he, he rejects them. But Jesus shows him that these truths of, of the new birth, what, what are they? That this washing of the guilt, of the pollution of our sin, and a transformed heart by the Spirit are as old as the Old Testament itself. Nicodemus should have known these things. It's not a mystery. And so Jesus has come not just to be a sign worker, but to be the one who would bring about the realities of the new birth, who would make the realities of the new birth a possibility through his cross and through his resurrection. In other words, true faith in Christ doesn't just simply affirm the supernatural in Jesus, but it looks away from self in a dependent gaze upon what Christ has accomplished on the cross for them. And we get this awesome example. Just as physical life was communicated to the people of Israel through a dependent look upon what? Upon the, upon the copper serpent lifted on a pole. In the same way, spiritual life is communicated to people who've despaired of any hope in themselves and who look with a dependent gaze upon what God has provided in his son. And so 3.15 really brings this narrative to the climax with this crystal clear portrait of saving faith. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, I think it's probably one of the best illustrations of saving faith in the Bible. But now a shift happens in chapter 3, verse 16. Up to this point, we've been hearing Jesus' words. But in 3.16 through 21, we get John's words. In these verses, John will now exposit for us what Jesus has just been saying. He wants to explain in a bit more detail what he has just illustrated about Nicodemus and what he's written about Jesus' words. And one of the reasons we can be pretty sure this is John speaking here and not just quoting Jesus is because it's filled with this unique vocabulary that, that only John uses. I'll give you one example. Back in verse 15, Jesus referred to himself as what? As the son of man. Jesus always refers to himself as the son of man, and no one else refers to Jesus as the son of man. But in John 3.16 and following, he's not referred to as the son of man, but as what? As the only begotten. And Jesus never refers to himself as the only begotten. That's a very unique John word, phrase. And there's a number of other um, vocabulary clues that we that we get um, in this in this section this is most likely John's words. Let me hand out the outline and we will we'll dive in here. In John three sixteen to twenty one, John will give us two astonishing features of God's plan of salvation for the world. Two astonishing features of God's plan of salvation for the world. Can you think of a time when you were astonished at something? Think back to a time you were astonished at something. I remember going through the Holocaust Museum when I was in Jerusalem and seeing examples of the absolute horrors of mass slaughter of the Jewish people. 
you come out of a place like that absolutely speechless. There, there, there's no words to, to say. You're astonished at the depths of evil there is in the world. Or, I remember seeing pictures when I was young of stars and galaxies in our universe that are so large that we cannot draw a dot small enough on the picture to accurately represent the scale of our size. That's how small we are. And coming out from those pictures, my mouth is just, I don't have any words to say. I'm, I'm astonished at how massive the universe is and how tiny we are. There's no words to say, just simply wonder. That's what we mean by astonished. It's to be hit with something so unexpected, so beyond our expectation that we're left with our mouths hanging open and the breath knocked out of us. And what we're going to look at this morning are some very familiar truths, some very familiar words. You probably memorized John 3.16. This is probably one of the very first verses you memorized. And it should be. We're going to see why. But despite the familiarity, these verses ought to establish. We ought to have the breath knocked out of us every time we come to these verses. There is so much packed into John 3.15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that John has to stop his narrative. He has to stop his story in order to call attention to these astonishing truths. The act of God in sending his son for the salvation of the world is an act so astonishing that John has to put the brakes on and say, we have to stop here. We have to think about this and look at these amazing truths. And he calls us to meditate on God's amazing love and purpose in verses 16 and 18. And then in verses 19 and 21, now on the backdrop of God's amazing love, man's rejection of God's salvation is all the more evil and high-handed. That is what's going on in this section, and it is absolutely breathtaking. So our aim is that we would be astounded afresh by these truths. But there's a little bit more. Nobody leaves the Holocaust Museum, and nobody in their right mind comes away from pictures of <coughs> galaxies and stars in the universe and goes unchanged. And in the same way, we're not just coming to be astonished, we're coming so that we might be fundamentally changed by these truths. They're not just for unbelievers, they're for us as well. So we're going to try to unpack that at the end. So if you look, the first astonishing feature is the astonishing offer of God's salvation from judgment through his Son, verses 16 through 18. John 3.15 just said that life comes through a look of faith to the uplifted Son of Man. But the question remains now, but why did the Son come? And why would he be lifted up on a, on a cross? Where did that come from? And John tells us that it is ultimately the result of God's inexplicable love. Look at verse 16. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. And this morning, we are just going to look at John 3.16. We're not going to go any further than this verse. This is the ultimate source. This is the ultimate salvation from which everything flows. It's God's love. This is the first mention of love in the gospel of John. Up to this point, we've learned a lot about the person of Christ. We've learned a lot about who he was as the eternal word of God. We've learned about what he came to accomplish. We've learned about his glory and his worth. But there's been no explicit mention of the ultimate cause, the ultimate reason for his coming. And so John begins to emphasize here that Jesus didn't just come from his, uh, on his own accord, but he was sent by the Father. And that was the result of the pure, free love of God. And this is astonishing. That's why John begins, John 3.16, by saying God so loved the world. He didn't just love, he so loved. In Greek, the word so is at the very beginning of the sentence. For so loved God the world. John's saying, do you want an explanation for verse 15? God so loved. God's love was put on display in many ways through salvation history. But this is the pinnacle. This is the apex. God's love is put on display even to this extent. John's saying, yes, the love of God will even go this far. This is how great the love of God. God so loved the world. So what's so astonishing about God's love that John reacts in this way? Well, there's three things. There's three things that are astonishing about God's love. The first is the object of God's love, the world. The Gospel of John, we read much about love, right? John's the apostle of love. Often it's love within the Trinity. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. Sometimes we read about God's love towards his disciples who love and follow Christ. But here we encounter something very, very strange. God so loved the world. The world represents the scope of humanity. It's not just the Jews. It includes all nations. But it goes beyond that. The Gospel of John, the world is almost always negative. The world is a system in rebellion against its maker. It's under the rule of the devil, we come to find out in chapter 12. The world loves sin and hates God the world includes all the high-handed immorality that we see praised around us today, whether it's homosexuality or anything else. But it's not only the especially sinful people that belong to the world, it's even religious people like Nicodemus. You see, the world is not so much a place that we live as it is a system of loves and desires that exclude and belittle God. Right? Isn't that what 1 John 2.16 tells us? What is the world? The world is your cravings for sin. The world is your desires to satisfy your flesh apart from God. The world is your discontentment. The world is your pride in what you possess, John tells us. That's the world. It's not outside of us. It is us. 
and is fully deserving of the condemnation and the wrath of Almighty God. And John tells us here that God so loved the world. What makes God's love so astonishing is that it's directed towards the world, a world that's not neutral towards him, but a world that is in complete opposition to him. D.A. Carson said, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. God's love to the world is astonishing because there's nothing in the world that could have attracted it. And there's every reason for it to be repelled. We love what we consider to be lovely. We willingly pour out our love on, on, on good and lovely things. I love my daughter because she's mine and she's precious. That's good. We should do that. But who loves what is completely disgusting and hateful and responds to you in total hate and rejection? Look over at 1 John. Hold your hand here. Look at 1 John 4, 10. We're going to be coming back to this verse. It is a Almost exact parallel to John 3.16, 1 John 4.10. What is love? This is what John says. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is love? Love. John says not that we have loved God. Now, do we believers, he's writing to believers here, do you love God? Do believers love God? What's the answer? We do, right? You better if you're a true believer. But John says that the purest definition of love is not found in our love to God. Well, why? Why is that? It's because any true love that we have is what? It's only a response to God's prior love to us. We love because he... What? He first loved us. And so John says, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that God loved us. The purest expression of love is found in God's great love to us. Well, why? Well, it's because his love didn't respond to anything good in us. He loved the world while it was still in love with sin and hated him. This is love. Because it was unattracted. It came solely from his own nature which is love. God is love. And there is no explanation beyond that. That's the only reason. So that's what we are to feel when we read the phrase, God so loved the world. Astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. But there's more. John goes on to tell us that God's love is demonstrated in the gift of God's love. The Son. As we study the rest of John 3, we're going to discover that the world remains under the wrath of God. That's what John finishes, John 3. You say, well, Michael, that sounds like a contradiction. How can the world be under the wrath of God, God filled with wrath towards the world, and at the same time love the world? Those two don't go together, it seems. Well, the answer is, profound, is found in his provision for the world. John is teaching us that God simultaneously stand, stands opposed to the world system and wrath, and at the same time stands in a disposition of love towards the world. 
And he has shown his love as he provides the gift of escaping his wrath. In other words, you cannot separate God's love for the world from his wrath and judgment to the world. Were it not for his judgment, his love would be shallow and meaningless. His love for the world exists alongside of his judgment and wrath. And his love expresses itself not in belittling the sin of the world, not just in overlooking the rebellion of the world, not in approving of the world's system. His love expresses itself in providing a way for his judgment to be satisfied on behalf of the world at great cost to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. God's not only shown love to that which is most unlovely and unworthy, but he's displayed the greatness of his love by giving the absolute best. Because that and that alone will deal with our problem, nothing else. His love is not mere sentiment. It wasn't just good thoughts. His love caused him to act, to give. And he didn't just give a vision. He didn't give an angel. He didn't give something else in creation. He gave his monogamous, his only begotten, or probably the best translation, his one and only unique son. This word is unique to John. Only John uses this word, monogamous. The last time we saw it was in the prologue. I invite you to turn back there. John 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. The monogamous, the, the only begotten, the one and only unique Son of God. John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. Glory as of the monogamous, of the one and only Son from the Father. Look down at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, the monogamous God, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. This word highlights the exclusive relationship between the Son and the Father. Nobody else has this relationship. There's not another like this. He was in the bosom of the Father in a happy relationship with God the Father from eternity. The Son is the perfect representation of the entire character of God and in complete submission to his Father from eternity. So just as God is eternal, never with beginning, he's just there for eternity, so also the Son was in a happy, loving relationship with his Father for eternity. It never began. The Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son. And if you want a window into that, go read John 17. This is the one John tells us the Father sent. So in this Gospel, we learn not only of the love of the Son, but of the great love of the Father. You see, the Son did not just come to rescue us from a mean, angry God. That's not what's going on. This was the plan of the Father. This was the gift of God the Father to the world. And that's why it's so astonishing. 
There's a song by, by Sovereign Grace that I love. It's called Father, How Sweet. I attached it to the back of your outline if you want to follow along. I read the first two verses. And it, it's exactly what we're saying here. I thought of the song immediately when I was studying. It says, Father, how sweet must be the pleasure you find in your eternal Son. For long before you made the heavens, both you and he rejoiced as one. And long before you formed the angels, before you made the day and night, Jesus exalted in your presence. And he was all of your delight. Father, what love you've shown to rebels that you would send your son so dear into this world of grief and trouble to bring unworthy sinners near. We'll never fathom how it pained you when you supplied the offering to rescue those who have disdained you. To watch your dear son suffering. God so loved the world. Gave his one and only unique son. 1 John 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest, that God sent his only son, his monogamous, same word, into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for us. So God's demonstrated his love in these two ways, but there's one more. God's inexplicable love is demonstrated in the purpose of his love. Eternal life for believers. <coughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You see, God did not only love a hostile world, but he demonstrated his love by sending his son. But he didn't just send his son as a teacher or as a role model, but as a substitute, a propitiation, is what 1 John says, in order to provide life for those under his judgment. Well, how would this happen? Well, verse 15's already told us. It would happen as he's lifted up on the cross. As the perfect Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. So what is eternal life? Verse 15, I already mentioned it. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Eternal life is nothing other than new life, the new birth that Jesus has been talking about from the beginning of chapter 3. It's not simply life that never ends, although that's part of it. It's a kind of life, the kind of life that's going to characterize heaven, the, the age to come. It's eternal life. It's life that's characterized by the total cleansing of guilt. And it's life that's characterized by a new transformed heart by the Spirit. It's a life that's able to enjoy and know God with unhindered fellowship. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you. The everlasting God and your Son, Jesus Christ, to be saved. That's what the love of God purposed in sending his Son. But not everyone gets this life. Many, many will still perish under God's wrath. This eternal life is not for those who clean up their life on their own. It's not for those who aren't too, too bad. It's for those who know their guilt 
and know their absolute inability to overcome sin on, on, their, on their own. And they look outside of themselves, just like the people of Israel, to the snake lifted up on the pole, to Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. God loved the world so much that he provided the only thing that could remedy the world's greatest problem, the wrath of God, his son. What does it mean to believe? You look. You look outside yourself, <clears throat> independent gaze upon what God has provided. Trust me. So my friends, be astonished. God so loved the world. We've just seen how John's begun to unpack these two astonishing features of God's plan of salvation for the world. And the first astonishing feature is his offer of salvation from judgment through his son. And this offer is the result of the inexplicable love of God alone. So be astonished. We'll finish, Lord willing, next week um, as we see the astonishing plan of God's redemption and then the absolute astonishing rejection of man to this great love of God. But we've got a few minutes here. Before we finish, I just want to think through a few implications with you. We said at the beginning that being astonished is not an end in itself, right? But when we're astonished at great things, we cannot go, but go unchanged. We have to be changed. You don't leave the Holocaust Museum without being changed in some way. And that's what God wants to do in us through these truths. So, let me flesh out a few implications, and these are primarily for believers. I assume I'm speaking to believers here this morning. Number one, I want to encourage us to know his love particularly. Know his love particularly. Often when people read John 3.16, they automatically read into it to mean that God loves every single person in the world in the same way. But it misses the point. We've already seen that the phrase, God so loved the world, highlights not necessarily every single person in the same way, but it, it highlights this system of anti-God system of, of, of the world. So under this point, there's a balance here that I want us to get. I don't want us to go too far to one side or the other. First, I want to say that God does love the world, humanity, every single person in the world in a general sense. He does. It is not untrue to tell a believer, an unbeliever, that God loves them. He does. It's absolutely true that God loves them so much that he's provided salvation for a sinful world such that if they believe, they can have eternal life. God loves them that much. That is true. Absolutely. He sent his son such that people like them could be saved by faith. That's true. But there's also another kind of love in the Gospel of John. A specific love. A love that goes beyond a general love and a general offer of salvation. It's a covenant. A specific love for those whom God has chosen out of the world. 
In the Gospel of John, more than any other gospel, God's love is particular. God has chosen certain sheep to give to his son to lay down his life for. You see, the love of God not only responds to a person's faith, it does, but it's the underlying cause and reason why anybody would believe in the first place. God loves the world, it's true. He's provided a remedy such that if any believes, they'll be saved, it's true. And he has also chosen and set his love particularly upon certain persons in the world. And had he not, no one would be responding. And we're going to see that clearly next week. Man doesn't respond to this on his own. <clears throat> so you can say it this way. John's statement about God's love for the world should not be used as an argument against God's doctrine of election and choosing sheep and particular redemption. And we know that because John teaches all these things. <laughs> John's not contradicting himself. God has demonstrated his love to the world by choosing certain persons out of the world, by sending his beloved son to die for and grant life to certain persons in the world. You say, Michael, why is that important? Why bring this up? I mean, it's so controversial. Bring it up because John brings it up, because the Bible brings it up, because God wants you to know how much you've been loved, and most people don't know how much they've been loved. God's loved you more than just in a general sense. Yes, he's loved the world by providing everything they need such that if they believe they'll be saved, but God's love gone beyond that. As he's chosen you and accomplished everything, even granting you the faith to believe. His love underlies and undergirds even your response to his offer of salvation. God so loved the world, especially believers. So know love of God to you in particular. Number two, proclaim his love freely. Proclaim his love freely. It's no accident that John 3.16 is perhaps the most used verse in evangelism. It should be. <laughs> it's right to use it in evangelism. It's perhaps one of the most concise summaries of the gospel in the entire Bible. It's a glorious verse. And this point is here to emphasize the flip side of our first point, number one. We should use this verse to tell people that God has loved them. I was out last night filling up the van with gas, just looking at all kinds of people coming and going. I was thinking, God loves them. He does. He loves them. And he's demonstrated his love by sending his son such that if they believe, they can have eternal life. That's a true statement. And if they believe, then it becomes evident that God's loved them in a particular way. But we don't know who those are. And so it's our job to freely, indiscriminately proclaim this message. Because it's in this message that, as it's proclaimed, that God works to grant faith and eternal life. So preach the love of God to the world, to every man he loves them. Number three, rest confident in his love. Rest in his love confidently. If God has loved the world to this extent, my friends, know how eager and willing he is to save you. He's not a stingy God. 
<laughs> I way too often think that God is stingy. That he's hard to get. And yes, he's holy. He's impossible to please on your own. That's true. But he's done everything that's needed to be done. He loves to draw near to those who are humble and look to him as their only hope. And get this, he is not slow to show mercy to those who come to him. He's not doing it because he's forced to, and he's doing it against his will. It's just something, oh, okay, I have to give you mercy now. You're coming to me. That's not God. If God didn't spare his son, my friends, know how eager and willing he is to save sinners and love you. Even though your faith is weak and little and flickering and not very great, he loves and he is overbursting at the seams with a desire to save sinners. He went to this extent. Know and rest in the, in the love of God. Number four, imitate his love constantly. Go back to 1 John 4. We'll finish here. 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verse 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought, we must love one another. This passage is here not only to define what love is to us, but to tell us the only reasonable response to it. His free, unconstrained love to us sets the standard of our love to others. True Christian love will always be a response to God's love to us. And it will always be unconstrained in its love to others. That is, it should not depend on what others deserve. It's free. It flows. Not because of anything outside of us or anything that is attracted to it, but because of what God has already done in and to us. And John says it's not an option. It's not an option. This is a must if you are a believer. We ought to love one another this way. It's one of the clearest tests as to whether or not you've experienced this because it would be the height of hypocrisy to have experienced this and not pour it out on another. That's why we need to be astonished by it, fresh, constantly, because this is what we're called to, to imitate and pour this love out on one another. And we do it in, in many ways. This past Valentine's Day, someone from this class won't say a name, but they blessed us in a, in a great way. Kind, free, unconstrained. We do it by signing up for um, meals. We do it by fellowshipping. One another, you do it by helping a pastor load his moving truck. You do it by forgiving one another. You do it by thousands and thousands of, of ways. Love one another in this way. Look at verse 12 in, in 1 John here. We'll end right here. Look how John ends this in verse 12. No one has ever seen God. It sounds like John 1.18, right? No one's ever seen God. If we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. John's point is that just as Jesus perfectly exegeted the character of the Father from God to man, so also now God's character of love in the gospel is put on clear display to the world as we love 
one another. So brothers and sisters, be astonished by the grace of God. Be astonished by his love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so whoever believes in him will not perish but have it It's good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Astonishing. That it never grew cold in our hearts. Let us meditate on it day and night. Thank you for not just loving us generally, loving us particularly. Christ would lay his life down for me. And the Spirit apply the work of Christ, giving me faith in the Son. Oh, Father, thank you. Fill us with comfort, fill us with joy, and help that to overflow in God-glorifying love to one another. Thank you, Father. We love you. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. Glorify your name in them, we pray. Prepare us for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed, and I believe there is a praise message. So we can